Welcome to the sermon cast from King Road Church. It's our desire that God uses this message to bring you closer to Him. If you'd like to pray with someone, speak with one of our pastors, or if you're looking for more resources, please go to kingroad.ca, scroll down on the homepage, and fill out the Reach Out fillable. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the message. We're going to be continuing in our sermon series in Matthew chapter 8. Uh, I don't have slides today, so no cheater notes for you guys this week. You guys are going to have to do some work, look in your Bibles, pull it up on your phone, whatever you have there. Uh, and Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23, is where we'll be. If you like the game of basketball, then you probably look forward to, like if you're, if you're a fan of basketball, you probably, every year you look forward to March. Because March is the time of the pinnacle of basketball every year. March Madness, the NCAA college championship from the United States, 64-team tournament that within a couple of weeks pairs down all the way to the final four. You get some of the best basketball that you'll ever see during that tournament. And, uh, yeah, the NBA is great and everything, and, yeah, you have the pro game, but let's be honest, these days the NBA is like, meh, let's just put it aside. There's no, there's no Larry Bird, there's no Michael Jordan, let's forget about the NBA. NCAA basketball is where it's at. So you get to March Madness, and it's, it's a very exciting time. You get to the final four, you've got these four teams that are left, these young kids that are just giving it their all to get the... Basketball glory, the championship. So some of the best basketball games ever played have happened during the Final Four. One of the most memorable for me was the 1993 championship game between the Michigan Wolverines and the North Carolina Tar Heels. The Michigan Wolverines were the favorites all year to get to the final and win because the previous year they had started these five freshmen and they, they had radically changed the game and how you view the game of basketball. They, these, these guys all wore like these baggy shorts past their knees. This is a time when, when it, the in thing was to have like these super tight short basketball shorts. If you ever look on, online for 80s NBA pictures or whatever, you see these like nasty tight short shorts. So the Michigan Wolverines come in, they've got these long baggy shorts, they've got black shoes, black socks, that, that had never happened before in basketball. So they, the, the way that they looked, the swagger they had in coming to the games, they were very confident. Everybody thought they were going to win that year. So they get to the final game, get down near the end of the game. It had gone back and forth. There was like 18 lead changes or something like this during this game. Very close. Get to the, the, get to the end. 14 seconds left. North Carolina had just gone up by two. But Michigan got the ball, 14 seconds left, so chance to either tie the game or with a three-pointer maybe win it. So they inbounds the ball to Chris Webber, their, their star player. He gets the ball, he dribbles all the way down court, he gets down into the corner, and th- this is the strategy in, in the end of a game of, when you're playing basketball, you get near the end of the game, you, dr- you, you dribble it as far down as you can, you call a timeout, because then you get the ball in your own, you can set up this play, you get the ball in your own end, it's good. So he gets down there, he calls a timeout. There's one problem. There were no timeouts left. It's an automatic technical foul against Michigan. North Carolina gets two more free throws and the ball back. They end up winning the game by six. 
So heartbreak for Michigan, right? And for their fans and obviously for these, if you go online, you, the whole game is actually still online. You go look it up on YouTube. And when Chris Weber calls that timeout, they, his coaches are in the background. You can see them go like this, oh, like, cause they knew. And you know that if, you, if you've coached and, and you've coached basketball, what you tell them in your last timeout is, guys, this is our last timeout. You, you make that clear. So you know that these coaches told the players this. But if those coaches could go back, they would hold Chris Weber's face and they would go, Chris, behold, there's no more timeouts. You got to pay attention to details. If you're playing a game of basketball, you got to pay attention to details. If you're reading a good novel, you got to pay attention to details. When you're reading the Bible, you've got to pay attention to details. And in this passage, Matthew uses the word behold four times. And whenever he says it, he's really wanting us to pay attention because something big is about to take place, something extraordinary. So he wants us to realize who Jesus is by looking at this passage and these amazing things that are about to take place. He's telling his readers, pay attention to what's happening in order to understand who this Jesus really is. So the big idea for the sermon is Jesus deserves your attention. And we're going to see this through two points. The first one, Jesus is Lord over the natural. And the second, Jesus is Lord over the supernatural. So Matthew chapter 8, starting verse 23 And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs, many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. That's the word of the Lord. So point number one, Jesus is Lord over the natural. After getting into the boat with his disciples, they they start to cross to the other side of the lake. Now, this boat was probably a Galilean fishing boat. They actually excavated one of these um, in an archaeological dig about 30 years ago. 
and, and it was in remarkably good shape. So they have a good idea of what their boats looked like 2,000 years ago in Galilee. And approximately 30 feet long could hold about 15 men plus whatever fish they gathered. So Jesus gets in. It, it's a suitable size for him and his disciples. And they get in and they're heading across. But it's just a, it's just a, a pretty plain boat. Like, it's, it's wood. It doesn't have underneath, like, sleeping quarters. It's just an open boat with a couple of benches across. So they're in the boat, they're going across the water, and then Matthew writes, behold, so he wants us, the readers, pay attention. A great storm came upon the Sea of Galilee. Storms were pretty common on the Sea of Galilee, and they still are to this day, actually, uh, that, that region is prone to some big winds that come in. They come in over the hills off of the Mediterranean or sometimes from the east. But the way Matthew writes this, he actually uses a Greek word that describes natural disasters. And Matthew is from the region, so he was familiar with the kind of storms they had. But this one was particularly strong. So he describes it as a natural disaster. Big, big storm. And so you can imagine being in this boat with these men, and these big waves come, and they're, they're rocking and rolling, and you're going up and down on these waves, and they're splashing in the boat, and, and it's a little scary. You're, you're going, is this storm, storm going to take our lives? Are we going to get capsized? Are we going to get flooded full of water and have to sink? This is a scary situation. And yet Jesus... He's totally at rest, asleep. The other guys, you can imagine with, with whatever they can, trying to bail out the water and yelling at each other, do this, not too many guys on one side, and we're trying to, got to make sure we stay balanced, let's not sink, let's not flip. And Jesus is sleeping through it all. And so they come to him and they say, save us, Lord, we are perishing And Jesus responds to them. Look at how he responds. Why are you so afraid, oh, you of little faith? Well, I mean, me, if I'm the disciple, I'd be like, um, I think it's pretty clear why we're afraid, Jesus. Our boat's about to tip. We're about to die. But Jesus still challenges their faith. And then he stands up. And he rebukes the wind and the sea like it's a disobedient pet. And it calmly lays down at his feet. And the men marvel, as we all would, and they say, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? It is amazing. What man can stop a storm And this is exactly what the disciples would have thought. And, and even Matthew's original readers, they would have come to it and, and said, a man can't stop a storm by speaking to it. That's not possible. But there are a few Old Testament texts that actually talk about storms being calmed. I'll read a few of them. Job 38, starting in verse 8. 
This is God replying to Job after Job and his friends have been talking and Job spent a little bit of time complaining. God's now letting him know who's boss. So God says, Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Shall or thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. So God's saying he created the sea, he created the boundaries for the sea, he tells the sea how far it can go, where it can go, when it can go there. Psalm 65, verses 5 through 8. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. So that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Psalm 89, 8 through 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. There's one who can calm the storm. Yahweh. God himself. So to ancient Jewish ears who are hearing this or seeing this for the first time, Well, that question that the disciples asked, it's already answered. This isn't just a man. This is a God-man. Yahweh himself can stop these storms. Listen to this quote from the Gospel Transformation Study Bible. It says this, The disciples' question has already been answered by Jesus' stilling of the winds and the sea. Jesus is God himself. He can bring order to the chaos of the sea, as occurred at creation. He can still the waves of a present storm whenever his people cry out in distress. And ultimately, he will relieve all their distress, as seen in the promise of an eternal kingdom with no more chaotic sea. You see that in Revelation 21. As powerful as the Creator is, he stoops to the weakness of his people, heals their suffering, and rescues them from peril despite their lack of faith. This is who he is. This is who he is. He is that powerful that he can stop a storm, and yet he is that gracious and compassionate that even when we lack the faith that we need, he comes to us. And he's with us. So when we see that word, behold, pay attention. Are you paying attention to who Jesus is? Are you paying attention to who he is? Or, in times when you're afraid, times when you have significant fear, are you forgetting about who's in the boat with you? You've all heard the the phrase, hey, we're all in the same boat. 
Well, that's literally true of us with Jesus. Jesus is in the same boat with us. If your life is a boat, Jesus is in it with you. And take note that during the storms of life, he's resting. And now you might think, oh, that means he's not at work, or that's that's why when I'm going through all these problems that it seems like he's not here, he's sleeping on the job. No, that's, that's not what this means. What, what I mean when he's resting is he is so at peace with God's sovereignty over our lives that he is able to sleep even through a life, life-threatening storm. And so if we look at Jesus and we know that he can rest in those significant times that we have, we can rest too. Isaiah 41.10 says this, Fear not, this is a great verse to memorize, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So if you, if you are going through your life, and there's certain things that you're significantly uh, afraid of, and that could be, I mean, whatever, like any myriad of things. It could be emotional struggles. It could be physical struggles. It could be anything that the, the world throws at you or that you yourself in your own sin throw at yourself. What, whatever, whatever you're scared of, I'd like you to do an exercise. If this, if this explains you, if you have significant things that you're scared of, um, this week at some point, take a piece of paper or maybe you have a journal that you, that you write in when you're reading scripture. Write down those things that, that you're, fr- you're afraid of on one column. Write them down. And then in a column beside it, write down what you're doing to take care of those things, to deal with those. And then afterwards, look at the list and ask yourself, where are you leaving room to rest in God's sovereignty? Ask yourself the question, are you doing, like, is everything in that list depend on your power? Or are you doing things that show that you are relying on God's trust, or God's sovereignty, that you are trusting in his goodness and his power? Are there things that show that you can rest and still get a good night's sleep, even though the world might be chaotic around you. And then do a, do a search through your Bible. You might have a concordance in the back of your Bible, or you can even, if you have the internet, just do a simple Google search for verses about fear. Write down a few and memorize them. The Bible has a lot to say about fear and how, how the Lord is with us and that we do have nothing to fear because we are in him and we are with him. Because he is, he is sovereign. He's sovereign. Jesus is Lord over the natural. And you can rest in that lordship. Second point, Jesus is Lord over the supernatural. So as you continue through that passage, you see after the calming of the storm, they land on the other side of the lake. And going to the other side of the lake from uh, Galilee is Gentile area. The land of the Gadarenes. And not only does Jesus take them to the land of the Gentiles, but he takes them to an area where there's tombs. 
And not only are there dooms there, but there are demon-oppressed or demon-possessed men living in and among those tombs. So again, if you have your, your first century Jewish ears on, this is a like ultimate of defilement everywhere here. And Jesus has led them right into it. A rabbi wouldn't go near this place, yet here's Jesus bringing his disciples here. And two demon-possessed men approach Jesus. And when you, when you look at the passage, they're clearly, they're shocked that Jesus would come here. They, these demons think that they can possess these men and oppress them the rest of their lives, and nobody's going to bother them. But here comes Jesus, and then the demons come out to see him, and they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, while the disciples are still trying to figure out who Jesus is, the demons know exactly who he is. They know that this is God in the flesh. They know that Jesus is the Son of God, and they know that he has authority over them and that they have to do whatever he says. And that the judgment is coming. They fear the judgment that Jesus will bring on them so much that they beg him to send them into a herd of pigs. Uh, in Luke's gospel, when he is recounting what happens here, the, Jesus actually speaks to the demons, and the demons say, we are legion, for we are many. And a legion, in, in terms of military um, strength, military terminology, this is four to 6,000 soldiers. So this is a vast number of demons. This isn't just one per guy here. This is like tons of them. And they are, they're saying, let us go into the herd of pigs. And there's many pigs nearby. So remember, Gentile territory, herd of pigs, this whole scene, defilement, unclean. This rabbi and his disciples shouldn't even be there. But Matthew says, behold, pay attention. And Jesus casts them out and they go into the pigs and they run down the cliff, drowning in the lake. The unclean spirits are now gone, the unclean animals are gone, and the unclean men are healed. Like we saw a couple of verses ago, when Jesus encounters what is unclean, it doesn't make him unclean, he cleanses it. And that happens here again. And this whole region now is coming under his lordship just because he's there. So even though this passage um, isn't about demons, really, it's about Jesus and his power, I think we should probably take a moment to just consider this whole idea of evil spirits and demons and this kind of thing. I think in the Western world in particular, Canada, United States, Western Europe, we tend to think that this, um, and our culture would tend to think that this, this kind of talk, this kind of writing, um, um, this was something that was just for naive people in ancient times. This didn't, this didn't really happen. These guys might have been ill or, or insane for some reason, but no, they weren't, not demon-possessed. But the scriptures are clear that the spiritual realm is real. And demons aren't to be toyed with. 
the Bible actually clearly gives us instructions not to be involved in witchcraft, not to try to do things like speak to the dead, or basically don't mess with the spiritual realm. Don't mess with demons. Don't toy with it. It's not, it's not something to be toyed with. Um, in the Western world here, though, I think there's a quote that it says, the greatest lie the devil ever told was convincing people that he didn't exist. And I think a lot of people have fallen for that. But don't toy with it. Uh, actually, I was speaking with a pastor. Um, a friend of mine arranged a Zoom call for some pastors this last week, and there was a, a pastor uh, who lives in Canada now, but had spent time in Africa. And he was talking a little bit about what he sees around here. Um, and he was just like, you know, it's not, it's not as overt as you see in Africa, but it's here. He said, you can see the fruit of it, you can see the root of it. You can see both things here, but it's just not quite as overt. But it is here. I remember hearing a story from a, a young lady I knew who uh, grew up in the Fraser Valley, actually was an MEI student, and she would tell stories of these parties that she would go to, and her friends were toying with things of the occult. And there were some very disturbing things that happened at these parties that, that have stayed with her the rest of her life. The spiritual world, the demonic realm, is not to be toyed with. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil's looking to destroy us. Anyone that's made in the image of God, which means any human being, he's looking to destroy. So we aren't to toy with this, but also... Scripture makes clear that we as believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been redeemed, those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, also shouldn't fear it. Satan and his minions have no power against us. And John 10.28 says this. This is Jesus talking about those that he has saved. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, Satan can come, like he did with Job, he can go to Job and he can, he can cause trouble for him, he can tempt him, he can tempt us, but he can't possess us. And his demons can't possess us. We are already indwelt by a spirit, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, has indwelt his people. So we can be encouraged. We don't have to fear it but we also shouldn't toy with it. Another quote from the Gospel Transformation Study Bible says this, Since believers are united with Christ, they share Christ's victory over evil. Equipped with the armor that God supplies and engaged in prayer, believers have nothing to fear from Satan and the demonic powers he controls. So Jesus brings us that freedom 
that he brought to these men, these demon-possessed men. He brings them, we don't know how long they were possessed, we don't know how many demons there were, but we know that he freed them of this. And anyone he saves, he brings that same freedom, that same cleansing. But not everyone wants that same freedom and cleansing. If you continue to the last verse that Matthew writes, he, he says, Behold, again, pay attention to this, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So they, the, the men who are, are freed of what happened and the herdsmen of the pigs, they run back to town, they tell all the stories, and then people come out and say, Jesus, just leave. Now for Gentiles, people in that day, people that didn't know Yahweh, who were probably involved in other types of worship, pagan worship, they would have seen this kind of thing as the work of a magician and somebody who had ill thoughts towards them, somebody who was coming to actually cause trouble for them. Plus, this would have been an economic problem because you look at these farmers out in the fields with their pigs, all of a sudden their pigs are gone. It's going to be a little hard for them to bring home the bacon. It's an economic hardship. It, it brought trouble to this town's way of life. So they ask Jesus to leave. They don't look at the miracles and the power that he has. They just look at, at the inconvenience of it. And Matthew wants us to notice this because so far we've seen crowds just flocking to Jesus, wanting to follow him. And yet this crowd comes out and says, Jesus, leave us. They don't want his lordship over their lives. They've seen what, what he can do. They've seen the authority that he has. And they don't want it. So this is a question that we all have to ask ourselves is do we want Jesus as Lord over our lives? Is Jesus Lord over your life? Or would you rather keep him in that box on the shelf that says Sunday morning? Because he's not content to stay in that box. If Jesus saves you, he is your Lord and there's no choice. He is Lord of your life, all seven days of the week. And remember, just recognizing who Jesus is, isn't enough. You look at what the demons said when they first came out and talked to him. What did they say? They recognized him. They said, what do you want to do with us, O Son of God? They knew exactly who he was, and yet, they weren't giving their existence over to him. They weren't bowing to him. They weren't... They weren't bowing to him as Lord and worshiping him. They were scared of him because they knew the judgment that he was bringing on them. If you confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, that means Jesus has lordship over your whole life. It's not simply a fact that you believe. He is Lord. He's Lord over things you see. So he's Lord over your phone. He's Lord over your job. He's Lord over your family. He's also Lord over things that you don't see, such as your desires, your heart, your emotions. 
He's, lastly, he's, he's even Lord over the things that other people don't see. So he's Lord over your internet usage. He's Lord over how you treat your spouse. He's Lord over how you obey your parents. He's Lord over what you do in private with your boyfriend and girlfriend. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over everything. So an offer to anybody, if, if there are things in your life that you have been holding on to as that secret little sin that you think nobody knows about. Jesus knows about it. But an offer, if, if you want to deal with that, and you should, uh, feel free to email me, or call me, or, or one of the other pastors maybe that you're more comfortable with, whoever. Come talk to us. Because we'd love to see you live a life of joy and freedom because those, those secret things that we hold on to are, are like these chains that we shackle ourselves in. And, and I, want to, I want to see you all free of those. Because Jesus is Lord over that area of your life. You aren't hiding it from him. You aren't getting away with it. He is already Lord over it but it's time for you to start living like he's Lord over it. So let us know. We would love to pray with you. Of course, it would, we can keep it confidential too. As long as it's not something that's a, a, a criminal, if, I'll just be honest, if it's something of a criminal nature, if you come to a pastor, it's not, there isn't like lawyer-client uh, confidentiality. We are required to go to... Uh, legal authorities with that kind of thing. But that doesn't mean that you don't go and confess it because it's still one of those chains that's keeping you. Make no mistake, Jesus is Lord over everything. Behold, Jesus is Lord. He deserves your attention. Will you pray with me? Father, we... Come to you in, uh, we come to you on our knees and with our heads bowed and we, we worship you, God. We acknowledge who you are, Father, as, as Lord, as creator of, over, over us, over our lives, over our, our, our things that we own, over our families, over the, the things that we do, over our thoughts, over our desires, over our past. God, you're Lord over us. And we thank you that in your grace, you have given us your son. And you didn't just, Lord Jesus, you didn't just stay on your throne high and lifted up and far away, but you got into our lives. You came down. You dealt with us, even though we lack faith. Even though those disciples lacked faith, and even though in our own lives there's times where we all lack faith, you still come to us and... You bless us with your grace. You show us your power. You indwell us with your spirit. So God, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would be with all of us as we are 
contemplating these things as we go from here and, and think about what this means for our lives, Lord. I pray that, that every one of us would, would leave this place, or, or if we're watching from home, that we would not be content to keep you in that Sunday box, because you're not content to be there, and you won't stay there. So help us to realize that and live for you every moment, every day. Help us to rest in your sovereignty and your grace, Lord. I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.